This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.29, Monsters. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and could you get me another cup of coffee? And I'm Nina, glad that I can now blame the characters' poor decisions on their immature frontal lobes. A big thank you to this week's new patrons, John N., J.R.S., Josh T, Colin W, and Minovsky Man. We couldn't keep the podcast going without you. We are so grateful for your support. Also, thank you to some people who wrote reviews for us this past week, Toby F and Leo L. And thank you to some people who plugged us on Twitter, Johnny Yurkaba 4, Sam the Chicken, and Little King Trass 4. Those of you who follow us on social media will have seen that we have entered the My Roadcast competition held by Rode Microphones. Hundreds of podcasters have submitted a two-minute episode each for a chance to win tons of great equipment and software. One prize is for People's Choice winner. You guessed it, anyone can vote on their favorite contest entry, and the entry with the most votes will win one of the prize packs. You can vote by searching for Mobile Suit Breakdown on the contest page, road, R-O-D-E dot com slash myroadcast, M-Y-R-O-D-E-C-A-S-T slash listen, or by visiting the link, which we will post in the show notes and on all of our social media pages. Voting closes at noon Eastern Standard Time in the United States on March 21st. So get voting. And this is not one of those vote every day competitions. You can vote only once and for only one podcast. So don't you dare vote for any of the other podcasts. Last week, before the white base left side six, Amuro was left shaken after a chance encounter with a strange young woman and her Zeon soldier escort, who turned out to be none other than the Red Comet himself, Shar Aznable. Accompanied by Cameron Bloom in his private spaceship, the white base left port at side six, but they were ambushed by Kanskan and his remaining forces. Amuro's superhuman intuition, stronger now than ever, allowed the white base to defeat Kanskan and clear the way to Zeon's mighty asteroid fortress, Solomon. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam episodes 35, The Glory of Solomon, and 36, Big Zam's Last Stand. Both of these have significantly different Japanese titles. Okay. Um, the one for Glory of Solomon mm-hmm. is Soromon Koryakusen, which means the fight to capture Solomon. Mm-hmm. And Big Zam's last stand is Kyofu Kiro Biguzamu, Terror the Big Zam Mobilizes. Or maybe just like the Big Zam is moving. <laughs> the Big Zam moves. We also research Archimedes Heat Ray, Weaponized Asteroids, and the Solomon Island campaigns and related battles in the Pacific part of World War II. First, the recap.
The white-based crew joins the Federation formation, and Bright goes to see the fleet commander, none other than Commandant Joaquin. He shows Bright the battle plans. Their target is a space fortress, Solomon, and the white base as part of the fleet will be in the vanguard. Bright worries that they aren't up to it, that they are overworked, but Joaquin is sure they'll be fine. After all, Amro is amazing and different from the rest of them. On Solomon, the Papua has arrived, but it is not carrying the mobile suits that Dozel hoped for. Instead, it has only one new prototype mobile suit, the Big Zam. Xeon soldiers are searching for the TNM fleet, but they have not been able to find it among the many decoys and fields of space debris. The Federation moves in to attack in a frontal assault on Solomon. They must hold out for 15 minutes to give the TNM fleet time to use its anti-fortress weapon. Solomon fires its guns on the oncoming fleet, and soon space is full of missile fire and beam weapons shooting back and forth. Some of the new public-class assault boats fire missiles that create a beam interference field, forcing Solomon's defenders to only fire missiles and to muster their mobile suits. Assuming that the frontal assault is a feint, they leave one fleet in reserve, to defend against the TNM fleet they assume is coming from another direction. From behind the beam interference field, the Federation fleet launch their own mobile suits and fighters. The Gundam, Gun Cannon, Gun Tank, and G-Fighters join a mass of Jim and Ball mobile suits. In the midst of the battle, Dozel leaves the bridge to go to his quarters, opulent rooms where his wife Zena and infant daughter Minerva wait with their attendants. Insisting that it is only a precaution, he has them all move to escape pods. Some distance away, the TNM fleet hides behind the debris of Side 1, preparing their new weapon, the Solar Ray System, a massive array of mirrors. They are finally detected and must rush to fire before Xeon forces can reach them. With the mirrors perfectly aligned, space lights up with a huge, blinding beam like nothing we've seen before. It destroys everything in its path and blasts a hole inside of the once-invincible Space Fortress Solomon. The fighting rages on, and the gun tank is badly damaged in a blast, wounding Hayato and forcing him to retreat to the white base. When Fra hears, she asks Bright to allow her to leave the bridge and help Sunmalo in the infirmary. The inner halls of the white base are full of the wounded, and Fra takes over looking after Hayato. Injured and exhausted, with tears in his eyes, Hayato admits to Fra that he feels pathetic, lying there while the others fight, never able to compete with Amuro and unable even to keep up with Kai and Sela. Fra tries to comfort him, telling him that he cannot compare himself to Amuro, that Amuro is different from the rest of them. Dozo calls all Xeon forces back to Solomon itself in a last line of defense, but Amuro single-handedly destroys the ship blocking his path and enters through the gaping wreckage caused by the solar ray system. A flood of gyms and balls follow him. Dozel finally requests backup from the 7th Division, Cassilia's forces, and they set a course for Solomon, full speed ahead, Shar and Lala among them. Assuring her that Solomon will never fall, Dozel nonetheless tells his wife and her attendants to launch immediately in the escape pod and head for Cassilia's Granada base. Their safety secured, his focus returns to the battle. In the next episode, Slugger's G-Fighter is hit, forcing him to return to the white base. Bright tells an obviously fretful Mirai to go rest for a while, while relieving her from her duties on the bridge. She goes looking for Slegger, but when she finds him, can barely speak. She cries with relief that he's not injured, and as he heads to the hangar she asks him not to die. He tells her not to trust her feelings in the chaos of battle, admits that he admires her, and asks her to hold on to a memento for him, a ring that belonged to his mother. As a blast hits the white base, the two of them crash together, and they kiss before Slegger leaves to return to battle. A 7th Division fleet, quickly assembled by McVeigh, leaves Granada in an attempt to rescue Solomon. 
Inside Solomon, Federation mobile suits are having to fight their way in, hall by hall, against the Dom and Zaku defenders. All seems to be going well for the Federation until they encounter the new, Big Zom, gigantic even for a mobile armor. It is commanded by Dozel himself, with two pilots operating the controls. Its powerful weapons destroy a group of ball mobile suits in a single hit, and a powerful magnetic field protects it from long-range beam weapons. Amuro senses the terror of a nearby gym pilot and goes to investigate. Three quarters of their fleet destroyed, Dozel's forces at Solomon attempt to charge and break through the Federation line. Amuro finally catches up to the Big Zam as it blasts off to lead the remaining Zakus and Doms out of Solomon. The solar ray system fires one last time, intent on being long gone before Kaecilia's forces arrive. The Big Zam sets its sights on the command ship at the rear of the Federation forces, while the White Base and its mobile suits set their sights on the Big Zam. Mirai returns to her post on the bridge. Dozel orders all his remaining units to retreat and abandon Solomon, including the two pilots with him in the Big Zam. He will charge the Federation forces alone, taking as many of them down with him as he can. Amuro and Slegger form the G-Armor, aiming to get in close enough that their beam weapons will penetrate the Big Zam's magnetic field. It is likely a suicide mission, but after seeing the Big Zam destroy half a dozen ships single-handedly, Slegger is determined to stop it. They manage to get in close, but Slegger is killed before Amuro can land the finishing blow with his beam saber. Dozel stands atop the Big Zam as it slowly goes to pieces, firing his rifle at the Gundam. Amuro sees what can only be Dozel's fighting spirit, like a huge purple and black demon rearing up behind him, before the Big Zam explodes and Dozel is killed. The 7th Division has not made it in time. They have picked up the escape pod containing Dozel's wife and child and will search the area for survivors. On the White Base, the crew grieve their losses as they recover from their wounds and repair what they can. So, the fall of Solomon and the death of Admiral Zobel. All this time, and he never did get to throw that banquet for Shar, but now he never will. It's really sad when you think about it. These two episodes are really dominated by the battle. And this is not the first time that the show has tried to show us a battle on this scale. We had the Battle of Odessa. We had the Battle of Jaburo. But neither of those tried to do what this battle has done and show us a battle that is both literally represented and comprehensive. And what I mean by that is it shows us everything from the highest commanders down to the lowly grunts. And it shows us the full sweep of the battle. It shows us each move and counter move, each uh, sortie by the Xeon defenders and the way that the Federation forces respond to it. And there's a sense of play and counterplay going on here. While Odessa had some of that, Odessa was very abstract. We saw a lot of big maps. We saw snippets of the combat that were meant to stand in for uh, much larger scale things that they just didn't have the time or the money or the inclination to actually draw. And then in Jabara, we do get the literal depiction. We see basically the whole thing as it happens from the perspectives of the white base just their small window into this battle and their small window is the most important part but it's far from the only part i think that type of visual storytelling may have been the right move though because for the most part i was not impressed with how the scenes of the big battles at solomon were constructed mm -hmm. there was not as much significant emotional impact for me as there were in some of those other battles mm-hmm 
And what moments did have emotional impact were moments that honed in on individuals. They were not moments that were trying to show us a lot. And it's true that, you know, those big emotional impacts are harder to have when you're looking at ship to ship. But something that I think has become more prevalent, maybe in a lot more recent works, is at least a sense of awe, right? At least a sense of like, wow, those are huge ships and those explosions are right there and giving you a sense of massive scale. Mm -hmm. And you don't even really get that here. Uh, although it almost seems as if the show recognizes that weakness because there's a line in one of these scenes where it pans even further away from the battle. It's like a zoom out Mm -hmm. and all you can see are flashing lights in the distance and they're very small. They almost look like stars twinkling and the show says something about each flashing light meant dozens or maybe hundreds of deaths and humans dead and drifting through space like space debris. Oof, that's a <laughs> that's a rough line. And the show the show doesn't dwell on it. It kind of moves quickly through that. Something you mentioned actually triggered a memory, which is from a discussion about why Mecha, why mobile suits. And I think this was from an interview with Tomino. This came out a few years after Space Battleship Yamato. And Tomino saying, you know, you want to tell a sci-fi story, but if it's just ships shooting at each other at long distances, there's no emotion in that. There's no power. What you need is basically people who can see each other. It's personalized. Mm-hmm. And hence, the mobile suit. It's not quite a person, but it's person enough. It also changes the stakes and the sort of personal and emotional calculus of a battle. We have a much easier time conceptualizing and giving importance to a duel. You know, the white base is crewed by dozens of people, except for a few people who are in charge. We don't have a clear sense of their growth and ability, of how they individually contribute to the battle. It's harder for us to follow the thread of their story and their trajectory as people because the thing that they are part of is so massive and involves so many people. Mm -hmm. I had this moment during the battle when, for reasons that we'll discuss in a second, but Fra goes down into the gravity block, the the like living habitation quarters of the ship that has been turned into a expanded med bay because so many people are injured, and it's full of people. There are so many wounded, wounded, more people than you would think were even on the white base. Yeah. More people than we have ever seen on the white base, just among the wounded. Yeah. What did you think were the most powerful moments during the battle? Sort of runs a spectrum, right? So (laughs) we have fun new technology moments, right? Mm -hmm. We get to see way more gyms than we've Mm -hmm. ever seen. Gyms being the mass-produced mobile suits that are based off of the Gundam. Mm -hmm. Ball mobile suits, Mm -hmm. which are amazing. I love them so Uh, much. The balls. (laughs) The balls are great. They're great. Uh, The you know, smoke and beam interference weapon. There's Mm -hmm. a missile the Federation launches, and it looks like a smoke bomb at first, uh, but then when the Xeon forces start trying to fire beams through it, it, like, refracts them. (laughs) Well, it's it's sparkly smoke. It's like glitter smoke. It is. (laughs) Uh, 
And probably the most like what I expect from a big, terrible battle scene were two separate pieces. First, the new Federation weapon, Mm -hmm. the solar ray system, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, for those of you who didn't watch the episode, the massive array of mirrors that are used to like concentrate and reflect sunlight into a super powerful beam that blasts a massive hole. Yeah. In Solomon. I mean, and when it when it hits ships, it just disintegrates them. And then against the asteroid, it melts a huge chunk of Solomon. One of, for me, the most horrifying and warlike scenes in these two episodes is uh, there are some gunners asking for a firing solution on the solar ray system. Like, what should we be firing at mm-hmm. before they themselves get hit with it? And they have time to, like, groan or yell. Mm-hmm. Just before the screen goes bright and we lose them. And again, that that takes this huge thing, a massive beam weapon that is taking out whole ships, and it makes it personal. Mm -hmm. It gives us a person for a sense of scale and drama, not ships. So thinking about this now, I'm reminded of something else I read. (laughs) Um, But when you were talking about how unimpressive it all seems, how it doesn't have that sense of massiveness and awe Mm -hmm. you know we have solomon we have this asteroid enormous seemingly invulnerable impenetrable asteroid base and then the federation fleet that's sent to attack it is we i guess we never see the whole fleet arrayed but it looks like watkins vanguard force that the white base joins is maybe half a dozen Mm -hmm. ships tianem's main fleet is at most another dozen these are it's a small fleet though they do have a ton of those uh public Sure. Gunships. Sure, but those quite... are those are tiny. Yeah. Um. Those are you know not not too much bigger than the gun parry, I guess. Okay. Um. So it's not a very big fleet, and the show does make a point at a couple of very significant moments of pulling the camera way way out, so that we were seeing you know just flashes in the distance, lots of stars, some space rocks. The ships are so small and so far away. Mm-hmm. The actual conflict, the human part of it is so small relative to the vastness of space. The scope of the universe. And I'm reminded of something I read from an account from a U.S. Marine about one of their battles in the Solomon Islands, actually, but mm. about how you would go in and in you know, you'd be part of this fleet and you'd be in a, a bay on an island and you just have this sense of how incredibly small you were. All of these troop transports, and they took up such a small amount of space, and the island was so much bigger, and how easy it was to just disappear into the wild nature of it. The other really impactful moment, and I'm excluding moments that involve characters we already know and are attached to, because a lot of that impact is we already have a connection to the people involved, but there is a group of pilots in gyms or like two gyms and a ball Mm -hmm. who get inside Solomon after it's been cracked open and they hear or see some indication of the big zam and two of them go after it and one of them hangs back saying we shouldn't rush in there. We don't know what's, we don't know what's out there. We don't know what we're getting into. And the two that rush in are destroyed almost immediately And the cautious guy freezes up in terror yeah, and gets caught in whatever the Big Zam's weapon is. But again, it's very much like the blinding light of the ray earlier. You see a brightness and you see the picture almost break apart until everything is is very bright and you can't see anything. Mm -hmm. And 
I got hit very strongly by how afraid he was. Well, this is the guy who is, he screams monster when he watches the Big Zam destroy his wingmen. I believe it, it is also because he sees its defense against beam weapons. Yeah. They fire their beam weapons at it and the weapons almost skirt around it. It has some sort of powerful magnetic field that deflects these beam weapons. It's right after he is screaming about a monster that Amuro seems to hear something about a monster and decide to go find it. And so this guy is like, he's so terrified. His terror is being broadcast out into... Psychically. Exactly. Yeah. There's a similar moment a little bit later when Amaro actually catches up to the Big Zam, almost catches up to the Big Zam. And it's right before the Big Zam takes off, leaving Solomon. It's activating its thrusters, right? And it's taking off. And we see a gym like running across and it gets caught in the thrusters backblast. Mm-hmm. And we see it in, in silhouette as the light from the thrusters just like disintegrates it. Because it's sort of far away and in profile, it's sort of hazy and indistinct. And it looks remarkably like the Gundam being destroyed. They introduce quite a bit of new music in these two episodes. However, a lot of the big battle, a lot of the, (laughs) to me, not very impactful parts of the battle are using the more upbeat, jazzy, fun battle music, even though a lot of ships are being destroyed and a lot of people are dying. Yeah. Well, and it's not it's not Char's intense, ominous jazz. This is the like, it's the Gundam version of like, here's the cavalry to save the day kind of thing. But I loved what they did with the music when Dozel is in the big Zam and he gives the order to evacuate yeah, and to, that to abandon ship. It was great. It sounds like a bunch of circuitry and a bunch of like circuit panels and reports all going off at the same time, creating this sort of low level cacophony that eats away at you. They also had great sound effects on the uh, solar ray system. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of twinkly, <laughs> shing, shing, like. Oh. I'm gonna see if I can. I'm gonna see if I can find those sound effects because there's something else. Yeah, the well, and there's a series of different ones. There's one for when they're expanding the mirrors because the mirrors are transported, sort of accordioned and folded up, mm-hmm. and so uh, either people or robots or people <laughs> in robots are out there like setting the mirrors up. And there are sound effects for that. There are sound effects for when the light is hitting it. It, It's amazing. It's wonderful. (laughs) And then it is such a terrible, terrifying weapon. Yeah. I mean, terrible in the sense of it inspires terror terror, (laughs) rather than it doesn't work because clearly it worked really well. We saw a lot of new tech here. We saw the mirrors. We saw the gyms and the balls and the public class assault boats. We saw Xeon sort of equivalent to the public assault boat called a GATL. That's like a flying missile shooting gunship. But we also saw the return of some old tech for the first time in many, many episodes. There are Zakus in play again. But one gets the sense this is because the situation is a little desperate. Oh, absolutely. And we'll talk more about Dozel in a minute, but you know he expresses frustration that they didn't just send him more doms. They send him this experimental... <laughs> Uh, this new experimental weapon that hasn't even really been tested yet. Uh, 
he'd have rather had more dependable <laughs> mobile suits that he is familiar with what they do and how to use them. Right. I mean, the Big Zam is incredibly powerful. We see that once it's actually deployed. And if he had deployed it earlier, if he had known what it was and what it was capable of, maybe the battle would have gone differently. But you can't expect him to know what this untested prototype they just delivered when he didn't even ask for it can do. Yeah, or how best to use it. Yeah. These episodes show Dozel to be a very simple and straightforward sort of commander. I think we've always kind of had that impression, or I I have. Mm -hmm. From the beginning, you get this sense that he is not playing politics in the same way that his siblings are, that he's a a warrior through and through. He's here to fight and win battles. Yeah, and he fights them in a conventional kind of way. And there's no, I don't mean this as a knock on him in any kind of way. I think he is commanding the defense of Solomon in a fashion that were it not for the Federation's variety of new technology would probably have been successful, right? But he has this very powerful fortress, lots of beam cannons. The Federation disables the beam cannons by using this uh, beam dispersal smoke. The fortress is nigh impregnable and he's got a massive fleet based inside it. He deploys part of that fleet to fight off the Federation, but they have this new weapon he's not expecting and they use it on the space gate as he's trying to launch his fleet. He's outplayed, but he's not an idiot. But he is also stubborn and proud. Absolutely. And perhaps a little arrogant. (laughs) Even as he clearly understands the danger that they are all in, he puts a brave face on it for his subordinates and his family. Uh, We find out his family, which is to say his wife and infant daughter, live in this base. Mm -hmm. There's a hidden, very opulent (laughs) uh, set of rooms uh, where his wife and her, I'm going to call them attendants, ladies in waiting... Mm-hmm. live and oh it's just a precaution everything is fine but you should get in the escape pod oh it's just a precaution everything is fine but i need you to launch the escape <laughs> pod now and make sure our daughter grows up strong right, right solomon will never fall i will never die but i need you to make sure our daughter grows up strong uh you know he refuses to call for kaecilia until it's probably too late mm-hmm. and this is you know this is no sabotage on shar's part this is no sabotage or subterfuge from anybody on the zeon side when they call for help shar goes immediately yeah. he beelines and so do um so do some other parts of kaecilia's forces mm-hmm. you know mcveigh and i don't know the other commander he's with but several members of kaecilia's forces head straight to solomon to try to help right with a significant and, fleet and cannot get there in time it just happens too fast mm-hmm. uh and he explicitly says he does that because oh this is just a minor battle i will look bad if i ask for kaecilia's help with mm-hmm. this like i won't be able to live it down mm-hmm. and it's not it's not that he is afraid of the political consequences of that right it's not the way it would be for giran or kaecilia where the feeling is if i look weak then someone will take advantage of that and my faction will lose influence or whatever with dozel it really is his pride he cannot bear to be thought of as weak hubris classic mm. greek he's he's hubris. such a greek hero he really is which is so for those of you who don't remember from high school english <laughs> or at least i think this was high school english for me uh hubris is when a hero in a Greek tragedy, they they suffer and eventually fail because of their own shortcomings. Like mm-hmm. that 
they're not suffering because of some totally outside forces. The thing that eventually leads to their downfall is from themselves. And it's usually about like pride and arrogance. Yeah. Well, and when I say he's a Greek hero, the concept of hero in sort of classical Homeric Greek myth is very simple and very clear. And it applies very well to Dozel because to be a, a good person within the the confines of this specific morality, you have to be good to your friends and your subordinates and do harm to your enemies. And that is that is Dozel all over, right? We see him, he is he's a like caring father. He seems to be very protective of his subordinates. He's a father to his men in a lot of ways. And he is all about bringing the battle to the Federation and doing as much damage to his enemies as quickly and as directly as possible. Towards the very end of the battle, Dozel has gone out in the Big Zam because from the beginning, well, perhaps not from the very beginning, from the time he sends his wife and daughter away, it becomes very clear that he is either going to win or he is going to go down with the ship. He has no intention of surviving a losing battle. Mm-hmm. And he has no hesitance about sacrificing himself either for victory or to cover the retreat of his family and his soldiers. Yes, he so he goes out in the big exam, even though his subordinates are like, sir, you don't have to fight. It's like, well, he actually does. He has <laughs> he has decided. Uh, and there are two other men in the big exam with him because it's such a large mobile armor. It takes three people to operate or at least to operate for all of its functions. And he sends them away. And they both understand what this means. And he sends them to safety. And after the Big Zam is damaged, he gets out in his suit. <laughs> and he's firing like a handheld weapon at the Gundam. Yeah. Standing on top of the Big Zam. In a moment that is very reminiscent of Iselina. Mm. Standing on her own ship, which is crash landed. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and Dozel is yelling... You will never defeat me. You can't kill me. And while on its face, that is obviously untrue <laughs> and ridiculous. I almost feel in a sense that he's right. Like he's so indomitable mm -hmm. and determined. At that moment, he's almost speaking of himself as Zeon, not, not himself as a man. The sense is you'll never kill us. You'll never really defeat us. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that Dozel dies in battle, we get this sense that because he went down fighting, he never felt truly defeated. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that scene, I mean, leave out the leave out the most interesting part of that. Because in that scene, as he's standing on the, the about to explode Big Zam and he's firing his rifle at the Gundam's head and Amuro's watching him, Amuro's like, who is that guy? And then this like demon... This, Red and purple and, and fiery. Yeah, this monster creature seems to just emerge from Dozel. From behind him. Like, eclipses him. It comes to... It's massive. It's almost as big as the Big Zam was. I mean, it fills Amuro's vision. We understand very shortly that this is... I'm not going to say a hallucination, but it's an aura that Amuro is seeing. It's mm -hmm. a product of his special abilities that I think. he can see... Dozel's scent of battle. <laughs> His fighting spirit. <laughs> uh, 
Amuro has one other moment that's a little bit like that. I say a little bit in that he's seeing something that other people cannot see. Though in this first instance, it is definitely a hallucination. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's working. Someone calls out to him that they've brought him lunch. He thinks he sees Frabo and his vision shortly clears and it is not Frabo. It is Joke John. Yeah. And this is sort of strange. I mean, it could just be that Amuro's working too hard. He's exhausted. He's seeing things. But if you really believe that, I have a space bridge to sell you. We've seen over several episodes now, Fra has a lot more on her plate. She's much busier. She just does not have the same sort of time to fret about Amaro and <laughs> look out for his every need as she did previously. Mm-hmm. We've also had Sela bring up to Amaro that she noticed that they're not as close as they used to be, that he is perhaps letting go of an important friendship. Mm-hmm. I think he misses her. I think he's realized he misses Fra. (laughs) At least he misses Fra bringing him lunch. Maybe that's the real kicker here. Someone is still bringing him lunch, but he still misses (laughs) Fra. Yeah, I think if he missed having his needs taken care of, the fact that his needs are still being taken care of would (laughs) alleviate that. Yeah. You never know what you got till it's gone. We also see Amuro continue to demonstrate that very heightened battle ability which ties back to an earlier moment when that mobile suit pilot in the gym describes the Big Zam as a monster. Mm -hmm. And Amuro hears and he's like, a monster? I'm going to go check it out. (laughs) My first thought was like, but Amuro, you are also the monster. Ooh, Amuro's not a monster. He's just different. But to the Xeon forces. Yeah. You know, if a monster is a weapon or an enemy so powerful that it seems to destroy everything in its path, Mm -hmm. that it destroys even very strong enemies easily, then Amuro is a monster. Yeah. These these two episodes, these Solomon episodes, do a lot of work to other Amuro, to alienate him. We get a couple of people, Commandant Watkin is the first one, and then Frabo later on, who talk about how Amaru is different from regular people. He's different from you and me. There's something special about him, but the language they use doesn't suggest special good, just special different, strange. There's no particular suggestion in either of those moments, I think, that he is superior in any way, except for the combat way. (laughs) Uh, In Watkins' case, we've had indications for a long time that the Federation know that Esperism is real and are pretty sure that Amaru has it. Aside from Matilda's comments, when, when they all get physicals in Jaburo, Amaro is the only one whose brainwaves are tested. So they know. They're, they're keeping an eye on it, and they're pretty sure what he is. Yeah, when Watkins says that to Bright, there's a sense of, I don't want to say admiration, because it's not quite admiration, but it's something in the constellation of admiration. It's like appreciation of this very useful tool. I was going to say, he is pleased to have such an effective weapon at his disposal. Yep. And then when Fra says it, there's a kind of detachment from it. We've seen Fra be very resentful as Amro has grown away from her. We've seen her be angry and hurt, so hurt by the ways he's changed. And, this... and treated her while going through those changes. Absolutely. But at this point, it feels like resignation. But it's also, I think, remarkable to point out that even people who don't have the background knowledge that the Federation officers have can tell that there is something about Amaro that is not like everyone else. 
Something about the way he fights, something about the way he acts, something about him has set him apart. And not just in the way of like, he practices so hard and he is truly excellent and he is our best ace and isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. But that, as you described it, that otherness. Yeah. That is perceptible to the people around him. But you know who, there's a category of person who we haven't gotten any indication of that otherness from. And that's the other ace pilots, Kai and Sela. That's right. Kai is an ace. We really see that that's happened, I think, in this. We've seen him improving constantly. Mm -hmm. But in the these two episodes, we see Kai's behavior in a whole new way. Yeah. And the interactions between Kai and Sela and Amro, even Slager. Uh, yeah, even Slager. Um that sense of otherness isn't quite there. There's a sense of camaraderie and maybe a feeling that all of them are people apart. I'm not so sure about that last part. I agree that within the group of them, there is a really lovely connection. And this is actually shown visually at one point before they all launch. Kai is complaining about how obviously dangerous their situation <laughs> is and that they really shouldn't be making them do this. And... Both Amro and Sela are admonishing him that he just needs to like buck up and do it <laughs> and be more hopeful. And the screen, we're inside Kai's cockpit. Amro has shown up in the little comm screen inside. And in the frame of the of the image, uh, a little corner cutout shows Sela in her own <laughs> cockpit. So we have the three of them all in their own cockpits, but all talking together <laughs> as they prepare to go out and fight. Uh, we also have, and it's such a little moment, but uh, on one of his kills in this fight, Kai whoops. He like cheers <laughs> when he gets it. Yes, I got it. Which feels very fighter ace to me, that he is detached enough from the situation that he can kind of ride the adrenaline and have it feel more like a game or a contest and less like life or death. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he leaves an opening behind him and a Xeon mobile suit almost gets him, but Sela is covering him and takes out the mobile suit and she calls him out on it. Says, you better watch your back. And he says, Sela, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sela. <laughs> Right. He's still the voice of pessimism <laughs> among them all. He is still the voice of what probably everyone is thinking, but for polite reasons is not saying. He's the he's the atheist in the foxhole. Yeah. I just love the I love the Japanese when he sees the public assault boats and somebody tells him that they're assault craft. He says, Assault craft? Does that mean we're going back into battle? Yada yada. Yeah. Tom's accent is funny, but it's uh the word is ia. It's in English. You would spell it I Y A. Yeah, yeah, da, yeah, da. <laughs> um, it can mean everything from like ew, gross, to like oh, I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> <laughs> and Sela continues to be cool, calm, and collected. Sasuka Sela. Yep. She has gotten over her earlier worries that she's going to run into Char on the battlefield. At this point, she just launches and sort of, she doesn't actually cross her fingers, but I imagine her crossing her fingers and going like, please don't have the Zanzibar show up. <laughs> and then she goes to work. Notably, Amuro in this battle destroys a lot of Xeon warships pretty much single-handedly. Yes, with, with one or a handful of very well-placed shots. Amro can take out entire 
battleships. <laughs> and you know, that reminds me of something. I feel like there was a time when we heard about someone who, at the Battle of Loom, destroyed three of our battleships. Some color of comet or meteorite. Tom just really likes doing that Battle of Loom voice. <laughs> <laughs> and we couldn't talk about the group of them without talking about Hayato. Ugh. <laughs> we we mentioned earlier Fra comments that Amuro is different and the person she's making that comment to is Hayato. Hayato goes out into battle, does not appear to shoot down anything. Uh, Continuing his unbroken streak of not shooting down anything. And fairly quickly uh, takes a really bad hit to the gun tank, uh, followed by a second explosion nearby that uh, causes further damage and even cracks the visor of his helmet. And he has to put an emergency patch on it. And we can tell he's bleeding inside the helmet. And he heads back to the white base. Uh, when he's brought in, injured, we again see screens on the bridge of the white base that show four different images of him being brought in from different angles and distances. And we see how he looks really badly injured. He's got an oxygen mask on. He's bandaged. There's blood. He's on a stretcher. Yeah, at some point I am going to need to talk about the ways Mobile Suit Gundam uses um shots where the important thing is happening either on a screen or through a window in a reflection yeah there's a lot of these sort of mediated shots it's a recurring aesthetic choice by the show that i think is very interesting yeah hayato gets really badly hurt he ends up in the med bay getting a blood transfusion he's unconscious he's definitely having a nightmare because he's raving about uh adam attacking and then he and Fra have this incredibly touching moment. And a few episodes back, when the Zanzibar was right there and he wanted to take revenge for Ryu's death, the mask started to slip and now it's completely gone. And we get Hayato speaking what's in his heart for the first time, really, and saying, since I came to the white base, all I have ever wanted was to beat Amuro. Just once. And I can't. I, I've never been able to do it. It's impossible. And now I realize I can't even keep up with Kai and Sela. Kai! He feels pathetic. Yeah. And Fra tries to comfort him, and he doesn't really want to be comforted. You know, we have joked many times about Hayato's ineffectiveness in combat. This is the first time we've seen an indication that Hayato knows that he's not very good. Mm -hmm. And that that pains him. Yeah. It was a lot more fun joking about it before we realized how he feels about it. On a somewhat more humorous note, Sunmalo mentions to Fra that Hayato has type AB blood. Uh, some of you who are more familiar with recent Japanese pop culture, it might not, not even be that recent, but when I lived in Japan, <laughs> it was very popular to do personality typing based on blood type. There's a thing. I don't know how long standing that <laughs> is, but... So the fact that they mentioned Hayato's blood type made me think, oh, I wonder if that's supposed to tell us something about Hayato's personality. <laughs> so we looked up AB blood type personalities, and it's a person who is very reliable and solid and calm, but also kind of two-faced. Well, well, well. <laughs> I don't really think of Hayato as two-faced personally. I think he just literally showed us his second face. I don't know. He's not a liar. I don't feel like hiding things about your thoughts and feelings is necessarily two-faced. I think to be two-faced, 
you have to actually present two selves. You have to be hmm. lying at points as opposed to just guarded. I guess I read the two sides of this a little bit more extremely than you do. I see Hayato in his normal behavior as being very like like friendly. Let's all get along. I'm your buddy Hayato. And then in this scene with Ra, it's like he's saying, I hate Amaro so much. I don't see hatred there, though. I don't think competitiveness implies dis- like hatred. But I think this is I think this is a competitiveness that has gone sour. It's a competitiveness that has gotten rancid. You, know, you and I are competitive. There are certain games that we don't play together because one of us would always win. And that just becomes too frustrating for the other person. The games mm-hmm. we play together are games that we can take turns winning to some degree. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hayato doesn't have that option. Right. <laughs> there is one game. It's the only <laughs> game in town. And Amuro will always win. Yep. And you don't think that would drive a person to be more than frustrated? Drive a person to hate? Drive a person to kill? <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool your jets there, murder hobo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a murder hobo. I'm Agatha Christieing Hayato. We've been talking about Hayato and Amaro and Dozel. Let's talk about another monster. <laughs> and the name of the monster is Tomino. No. It, it is. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, what... Okay, the scene we are talking around is the scene between Mirai and Slegger. In case you hadn't guessed, that was the scene that made me incandescent with rage. Apoplectic. She was sputtering. I couldn't speak. I was so angry. Flames, flames out of the sides of my face. We had to stop and go back because Nina missed about seven minutes of the episode because she was too angry to focus. So I didn't break it down in exquisite detail in the recap. We will thank you for that. <laughs> we will do some of that here now, so you can understand what's happening. Slager takes a pretty bad hit, comes back to the white base for repairs. Mirai is clearly deeply unsettled. Bright breaks protocol to have a private conversation with her, which is not allowed. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he knows that she's upset about Slager or just thinks the battle in its entirety is taking a toll on her or what. Yeah, I watched that scene with Bright and Mirai a couple of times, and I think you can easily read it either way. Either Bright just knows that she's upset and thinks she's tired, or Bright knows she's upset and why she's upset. Right. But he says to her something about, you know, I I wish you would trust me to protect you. I know how you feel, but I'll always be here waiting for you. And again, is he saying, I know you feel like you have to be strong and independent? Or is he saying, I know you have feelings for someone else, but I still care for you and I'm going to like wait around? Yeah, it's extremely ambiguous. It could easily be either one. So, And I think which one you think it is depends a lot on how you read the next scene. And there are a lot of different ways you can read this next scene. So (laughs) I'm going to fortify myself with a little more bread before I continue. (laughs) We would like to thank friend of the podcast, Janelle, for providing us with the delicious pretzel bread, which we are eating during this episode. Necessary sustenance. If you hear chewing noises in the it's background. Janelle's fault. <laughs> Slugger, his plane in the process of being repaired, runs off to get a snack. Mirai first goes to the, I don't know what to call it. The hangar. First goes to the hangar and is told, oh, he's not here. He went over to the mess. He'll be back when his plane is ready. So she goes over there. 
I don't remember which of them speaks first, but Slegger has sort of a, oh, what are you doing here moment. He's clearly caught by surprise. Um, he's got like half a hamburger in his mouth when Mirai shows up at the door and he's just sort of like, Whoa. And she looks at him and sees he's not wounded. She's clearly deeply relieved. She starts tearing up. The call comes in that his ship is ready. He starts to leave. She just kind of says his name as he's walking past her and he stops and says something along the lines of, you know, you can't really trust your feelings like you're young. Battle is very chaotic. You shouldn't put too much stock in what you're feeling right now. She doesn't even get a sentence out. She just says like, but no. What do you mean by that? <laughs> like, uh, At which point there's this whole long thing where he's like, I don't deserve your affection. I'm in awe of you. You're such <laughs> an incredible person. <laughs> She just keeps like saying his name. Slagger Chewy. Um, he pulls out a ring, which apparently belonged to his mother, and asks her to hang on to it for him, which is when you know he's going to die. Right. It's sometimes referred to as a death flag. Um, and then she sort of says, but and then the ship gets hit, they're jostled together, and for the first time in Gundam, two people who are knocked together by a jostled ship actually wind up embracing. Mirai closes her eyes. Slager kisses her. Yeah, she totally leans into it. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. So. And I want to <laughs> emphasize again that what Mirai says in this entire conversation is, Slager, what do you mean by that? Slager, and but that is all she says. Slager has this whole long thing about how she's in love with him and he doesn't deserve her and she shouldn't trust her feelings right now. And will you take my mother's ring? I admire you so much. Yeah. So Mirai doesn't give us a lot to go on. In terms but of interpreting the scene. She's very tearful. Yep. She keeps stopping him from leaving. Mm -hmm. And she does lean into the kiss. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot. I have some theories, but maybe I should wait. What, well, what, what was your read? No, I was going to say, let's just talk about why this is so infuriating first. Oh, does that not just go without saying? If I need to remind you. <laughs> Slager hit Mirai in the face really hard. Last episode. Last episode. She gave him a look like daggers. She gave him a look like she hated his freaking guts. So point one, I don't want to see him be a decent guy. That moment when he's first like, you're young, you this is an intense situation, you shouldn't trust your feelings. I was like, that's actually a really, if you were looking at an adult faced with the affection of a much younger person in this kind of situation, you would hope that that adult would have this sort of kind and understanding, but also distancing behavior, <laughs> not taking advantage of the situation. But I don't want to see Slager be a quote unquote decent guy. Like he's an <laughs> plenty of horrible people occasionally do nice things like that's that's one of the uncomfortable things about humanity. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And one interpretation of this situation is that the show is telling us Slager was right. When Slager told Cameron that he needed to be more forceful and needed to show Mirai that he was serious and basically have this very aggressive, physically uh, mode of expressing himself. If Mirai is now in love with Slager, that means Slager was correct because she apparently found that appealing and now she's in love with him. Yeah. Which is a really horrible message, which is not to say... 
So here's the the other frustrating thing about the show. We're going to talk about other interpretations of this scene uh, and some of the other ambiguities, but perhaps the most frustrating thing for me is that the show does not clearly indicate which it's presenting. It doesn't say, this is what we're saying, and it does not take a stand morally, like from a messaging perspective, mm-hmm. on it. And this is a show that takes a lot of moral positions. <laughs> and often the show does play with ambiguity. It plays with these situations where the show doesn't present any kind of a right answer. But it usually feels like the show knows what it's doing when it does that. And it doesn't feel that way here. Because they could they could present Mirai as having fallen in love with this kind of abusive masculine figure. The show could be saying this does happen. Women do fall for guys like this, but it's terrible <laughs> that this happens and it's because of XYZ. Or you know, you could there could be societal commentary there about why women wind up with abusive men, <laughs> for mm-hmm. instance. But there isn't. There's there's nothing there. One of the this isn't my theory, but in addition to thinking a lot about this, I've also been looking up other fan theories about this because this is um, a pretty universally puzzling scene. No one has a good answer and no one watches this and goes, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) So one of the theories I've read is that if you draw some broad conclusions from the ways that Mirai's relationship with her family and particularly her father are described throughout the show and the way Mirai reacts to those, you could Mm. maybe come to the conclusion that Mirai had a very difficult relationship with her father and that that difficult relationship with her father may have led her to seek in men the sort of person that Slager is. I don't buy it. I don't think that's there throughout the show. Right. I think the show makes very clear that her relationship with her family was fraught and uncomfortable, but I don't think it makes the case for her father being domineering in that way Mm -hmm. necessarily. Yeah, there's no real evidence for that. To get into my own reads on this, I think there are two possibilities that make sense to me. The first one is Based on how little Mirai says in this interaction and her presentation throughout it, this is not what it seems to be. It's not what Slager thinks it is. Mirai has not gone down there with the intention of confessing her feelings to Slager and getting herself a kiss. Back when Lieutenant Matilda died, we noted that before Matilda went out on her last ultimately lethal mission, Mirai had a moment where she got suddenly shocked and terrified and there was no explanation for it at all (laughs) there was a weird moment between the two of them yeah now right before slager goes out on his ultimately lethal mission mirai has another similar moment and so i think it might be that mirai has a little bit of the esper power mirai has a little bit of that psychic ability and what she's experienced is a premonition first of matilda's impending death and then of slager's And she didn't know what it was with Matilda, and maybe she still doesn't quite know what it is, but when it happens to her with Slager, and then he comes back and his his ship has been damaged and he's wounded, and she rushes down there and he's alive and she's so relieved, but she's also so overcome by this premonition of his imminent death. She's completely overwrought. She's not able to say anything. And because she's so overwrought, Slager interprets interprets it the way he wants. And then they're thrown together. And the biggest challenge to this theory is that kiss that does happen. But given how like completely overwhelmed she is emotionally in that moment to be in his arms and then 
I can see how a kiss could happen there, even with that setup. The biggest hurdle for me there, because it's not difficult to imagine how two people in combat under those intense emotions might have an ill-advised kiss if the moment seemed opportune. Like, what the heck happened to whatever feelings she had for Bright? (laughs) It hasn't seemed the same ever since they went to side six and she had those interactions with Cameron. Mm -hmm. It hasn't seemed to have gone back to the way it was before. I don't understand it. Yeah. All right. Theory two, and maybe this will be a little bit more satisfactory to you and help to explain the change in the Mirai-Bright relationship. And this is going to be a little bit meta-narrative-y. Oh. Yep. Because we know based on some notes from early on in the production outlining the way the storyline was going to go, if the show had been able to go for its entire 52-episode run, that at least from side six on, the storyline has not been going according to the original plan. (laughs) We don't know a whole lot about it because these notes were sort of sketchy. But for instance, Amuro was not going to meet his father at side six. He was going to meet his father later. Oh. So the storyline has been changed. We don't know all of the ways in which it's been changed. However, one thing we do know is that in the next few episodes... There was going to be a three or four episode long arc during which Bright fell for and then was ultimately himself forced to kill a Xeon spy. Oh. Yeah. So there was supposed to at some point be a falling out or a breakup or not necessarily anything dramatic, but between Mirai and Bright. Or that they just weren't exclusive and then they both had these sort of parallel doomed romances. And we've talked a lot about how First Gundam uses parallel stories. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Mirai Slager thing was meant to parallel a storyline with Bright that ended up getting cut. And I think the Mirai and Slager thing stayed in because it serves in this episode a different paralleling purpose because Mirai and Slager parallel Dozel and Zena, Zena being the name of Dozel's wife. Really? Mm-hmm. Bear with me for a second. <laughs> I was going to say, it also serves the purpose of making us care about Slugger's death, because otherwise I'm not sure I would care. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I care anyway. But this is an episode about humanizing Dozel and about humanizing Slugger. They're often presented one after the other. We'll have a scene with Dozel and then it'll cut to a Slegger scene. And there's this is a, a small weird thing to notice, but watch the episode again. Pay attention to how many shots of either Dozel or Slegger focus on the man's chin. I was going to say they have very similar face shape. They yep. both have the like lantern jaw. Yep. They're both like big, tall, aggressive, burly, manly men. Right. They fit a very particular sort of aggressive masculine ideal. Yep. They both. um, This is another weird thing. But in this episode, there's a big focus on both of them eating. (laughs) Well, Dozel drinking. Dozel is going through like multiple cups of coffee. There's a whole little interaction with him like getting a cup of coffee from his subordinate. And later he asks for another cup of coffee. And then with Slager, we get that like it's a it is a scene that is weirdly focused on Slager eating a hamburger. It's true. Um, So there's a lot of ways in which Slager and Dozel parallel. And then the way they die is actually very similar, too, because both of them go into this final confrontation saying, yeah, it's a suicide run, but I'm going to make sure that no more of the guys on my side get killed. I think Slager's last line is, I'm going to make sure there are no more casualties. Whereas then on the women's side, you see two aristocratic, more or less keeping it together women, both entrusted with something precious, 
In Zena's case, obviously more precious because it's a baby. (laughs) In Mirai's case, a ring. Yeah, and so that has the function of humanizing Dozel and of humanizing Slager so that when they die, we feel things. But it has a secondary function, which is more important to the overall theme of the story, which is these guys are basically the same. Mm -hmm. They're on different sides. They have good points and bad points. And I think on balance, they're both pretty bad people, but they also have admirable qualities too. And there are people who love them. Slager's death also gives us one of, I think, the coolest episode endings so far. There is a sad Enka ballad. Enka is a particular style of Japanese music. Uh, It's piano and then a singer and sort of like swells dramatically after Mirai gets the news that Slager has died and she runs off the bridge uh, to cry privately. And while the music is playing, we see all the wounded in the halls. We see Hayato laying on his pallet. (laughs) In one of the more dramatic shots, we see the bridge, and because of the zero G, Sela is sitting in a chair on the bridge, and Kai, looking as if he's walking up one of the walls, (laughs) floats past her. And Tom informs me the song is sung by Matilda's voice actor. Yep, who before getting into voice acting was an Enka singer. I have no idea what music they play in the dub. (laughs) Uh, If you're watching the dub, maybe switch over just to hear the song. I would bet they use the same song. Um, So the the term for putting a song like this into the episode, and if you watch a lot of anime, you've definitely seen this before, where they'll, in a particularly significant moment, they'll put a song into the episode. They'll usually have the lyrics for the song on screen, uh, and it's called an insert. Um, They're quite significant. They're usually for music that's been written for the show or music that the production company is trying to push record sales of. I thought it was particularly nice. Uh, The drama of the scene feels wasted on Slinger. (laughs) For longtime Gundam fans, this isn't a spoiler for anybody else, but for longtime Gundam fans, in the Solomon episodes, Admiral Tianem's flagship is called the Titan, and it's pronounced in Japanese Titan. Why is that significant? You will find out when we get to Zeta. (laughs) Also, there's a ship called the Papua. So if you didn't think this was about the war in the Pacific, you were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You were very wrong. We are entering the final stages of First Gundam now, and the World War II allegory, which has never been particularly subtle, is nonetheless somehow becoming even more obvious now. The show has told us that within the world of the Universal Century, the Xeon Asteroid Fortress where Dozel's Space Attack Force is headquartered is called Solomon because it lies within a region of space called the Sea of Solomon. But it's not much of a stretch for me to say that it's called Solomon because it's meant to stand in for the Solomon Islands, an archipelago in the southwest Pacific which borders the Solomon Sea and where some of the fiercest and most important battles of the Pacific War were fought. Gundam's Battle of Solomon condenses the real history that inspired it into what seems to be less than a single day of ferocious combat around the asteroid fortress. But the real historical events that inspired it took place across three years, and more than half a million square miles of ocean and island. 
To really get a sense for the story being told through these parallels, we have to step back and look at the abstract strategic situation and the role that Solomon or the Solomons played in it, both at the end of 79 and the beginning of 1942. As you hopefully remember from our last episode, Solomon occupies one of the two Lagrange points that are sometimes called Trojans and which lie within the orbit of the moon, one always ahead of the moon, one always behind. Now, Zeon's side three occupies the Lagrange point behind the moon, so any Federation ships that are trying to get to side three from the Earth are going to need to go around the moon, and that means passing near one of the two Trojans. At the very outset of the war, Zeon's navy swiftly defeated the Federation-aligned sides at each Trojan, only sparing neutral side six, and then they established powerful asteroid fortresses at each Trojan, from which they could control the approach to side three and keep the homeland secure. Of course, being so much closer to Earth also made Solomon the perfect staging ground for Zeon's ongoing invasion of the planet, and that's exactly what they've used it for. Remember, it's Space Attack Force, not Space Defense Force. <laughs> the Solomon Islands are northeast of Australia, near New Guinea, and the larger islands of the Bismarck Archipelago, New Britain, and New Ireland. A little further south and east gets you to Vanuatu, New Caledonia, Fiji, and the Samoan Islands. Over the course of little more than four months, the Imperial Japanese forces basically ran the table in the South Pacific, crushing Allied resistance wherever they encountered it, and occupying everything from Taiwan and the Philippines, to Myanmar and Thailand, to Indonesia and the northern part of New Guinea. That last one is especially important in two senses. First, because New Guinea is close enough to Australia that bombers based there would be within range to raid the northern coast of Australia. And second, because that's only true for the southern part of New Guinea, and Japan did not manage to seize that part of the island during their first lightning offensive. That's going to be very important in a minute. Protecting all of this new territory was a screen of far-flung Pacific islands. Iwo Jima, Wake, Guam, the Marianas Islands, the Marshall Islands, the Gilbert Islands, and the Northern Solomons. Now from this point forward, I'm going to do what Gundam does, and I'm going to fold the Solomons, as well as its neighbors, the Bismarck Archipelago, and part of New Guinea, into one overarching theater of war. You can divide the war in this region into separate battles and campaigns if you really want to, but in a very real sense, these were all small parts of one massive, comprehensive struggle for the fate of the Southwest Pacific. These islands formed the far flank of the Japanese Empire. Complete Japanese control, if it could be won, would sever the lifeline of American shipping to Australia. It would allow Japanese bombers to threaten the Australian mainland, and it would guard Japan's access to the vital war resources that the empire was already extracting from its new conquests in the Philippines and Indonesia. On the other hand, any invasion of the Japanese home islands would need to proceed through the conquered territories. That was half the reason Japan had conquered them in the first place. And to do that, the Allies first had to reckon with the Solomons, and the mighty stronghold that protected them, Rabaul. So it's 1942 or UC-79, and the tide of war might be about to change. The Japanese Empire or the Principality of Xi'an have each suffered their first major defeats at the Battle of the Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway, or else at Odessa and Jaburo. The momentum is shifting, as for the first time the aggressors have been stopped in their tracks. They have lost valuable planes, pilots, ships, and mobile suits, and now for the first time their smaller population and weaker economy are beginning to show as they struggle to replenish those losses. Yeah, we see at the very beginning of the first of these two episodes, when Dozel is talking to that officer from the Papua, 
and being told, uh, there's a huge backlog of people who want mobile suits. We couldn't give you everything you wanted <laughs> because everyone all over the army is asking us <laughs> for more equipment and there's only so much we can do at any one time. Exactly. So even though this is one of their most important fortresses and Dozel's one of their highest ranking generals, he still doesn't have the pull to get everything that he wants. And it's not just the economy, actually. We'll need to do a segment on this at some point, but Japan also just had a completely inadequate supply corps. It was just not up to the task of supplying an army as far flung as Japan's ended up being in the middle of a war. Seizing the initiative, Federation or Allied forces begin to counterattack. In the Solomons, the Allies launched an offensive against Japanese-held islands in the northern Solomons in order to prevent their being further fortified. The first of these islands, Tulagi, Gavutu, and Tanambogo fell within days. But the other one, the one that is still sometimes called Hell's Island, developed into a six-month-long grind of bloody, malarial attrition as both sides poured tens of thousands of troops into the meat grinder on Guadalcanal. Gundam abbreviates that battle a bit, but as in the show, it opened with the attack fleet managing to sneak up on the defenders. The Federation used colony debris and Minovsky particles. The Allies got by with bad weather. Likewise, the defenders initially underestimated the strength of the attack, believing it to be only a reconnaissance in force rather than a real invasion, and therefore not responding with a strong enough counterblow when they had the opportunity. Experts today now believe that Japan could have won the battle if they had struck harder, faster. Likewise, neither side was ever able to attain complete control of the space or the sea around the fortress, and much of the fighting was contested by mobile suits either inside the fortress, where we can say that they're more like infantry, or out in space, where they're a lot more like aircraft. Now, in the air and sea, the battle over and around Guadalcanal had an odd back-and-forth character to it that, well, I think you'll get where I'm going with this in just a second. But the Japanese Imperial Navy were, at the time, arguably the finest in the world at night fighting. In an era when the conventional naval wisdom on night battles was don't, the Japanese <laughs> trained for it, they had doctrines for it, they developed equipment specifically for it. As a result, they had some of the best low-light binoculars in the world, made by the company that would go on to be camera maker Nikon. So during the night, the Japanese Navy controlled the seas. But during the daytime, it was the Allies' Cactus Air Force that controlled the sky. I say controlled and not dominated because although American air power did have the advantage over Guadalcanal, it was an advantage maintained through constant challenges and at great cost. 94 pilots were killed and many more were wounded, but in turn they downed 268 Japanese aircraft and damaged at least as many more. They were mostly flying Grumman F-4F Wildcats sturdy and heavily armed planes that could not match the Japanese Zero fighters for speed or maneuverability. To make up for this, they did not try to dogfight with enemy fighters, but instead developed a combat doctrine based on getting the altitude advantage, then attacking by diving from above, ideally with the sun behind them to blind the enemy pilot. So the Allies' naval and air forces were strongest during daylight. They systematically used the power of the sun's light against their enemies. It was like they were supported by some kind of solar ray <laughs> system. After either six months or a day of fighting, Xeon or the Japanese decided that victory was no longer possible and that the battle was growing too costly. Reluctantly, the general commanding the battle conceded that an evacuation was necessary. He personally led a powerful but fruitless and costly counteroffensive that gave his troops the opportunity to escape but ultimately cost him his life. 
And at this point, I have to combine the events of a couple real-world battles, because while the forces on Guadalcanal were evacuated, and there was a major counteroffensive launched in order to screen the evacuation, and the general in command of the forces at Guadalcanal did personally lead a counterattack to try to break out of Allied encirclement, and he did die as a result of it, that was actually a different later counterattack on a different island, Bougainville, a little farther north. The Guadalcanal counterattack, initiated in February 1943, consisted of naval attacks designed to make it look like Japan was preparing for another mass offensive against the Allied foothold. Instead, swift warships snuck in under cover of darkness, and over the course of a week, they evacuated the bulk of the Japanese soldiers still on the island, 10,652 men. They left behind 19,200 dead. There's perhaps a bit of wish fulfillment on display in Gundam, because the battle it should most resemble in terms of its drama and its strategic effect on the war as a whole is a battle that never happened. After Japan abandoned Guadalcanal, the Allies looked at what the victory had cost them, and at the still mighty fortress Rabal, and wondered what it would cost to take it, too. Some in Allied command wanted to smash it, but ultimately they chose a different path, and over the course of the next year, in a strategy called Operation Cartwheel, the Allies slowly tightened the noose around Rabaul, squeezing off its connection to the Japanese home islands, raiding and bombarding the stronghold until it was no longer able to project power, and then leaving it behind, letting it wither and die on the vine, so to speak. There was never a grand, honorable fall of Rabaul, only a slow death by strangulation. The fighting happened on a dozen islands around it, and this, by the way, is when the Japanese general who commanded at Guadalcanal and then at Rabaul, Hyakutake Harukichi, is going to launch his grand counterattack on Bougainville to try to overrun one of the American airbases being used to bombard his fortress. The attack failed utterly, with the Japanese suffering more than 12,000 casualties. The survivors, including Hyakutake, were cut off and trapped on Bougainville. Not long afterward, the general suffered a debilitating stroke, Trapped on the island, he was unable to receive medical attention until months after the end of the war. By that point, there was no saving him, and he died soon after. His fortress, Rabaul, would remain cut off throughout the war. What remained of its strength rendered useless. In full, the campaigns in the Solomons, New Guinea, and the Bismarck Archipelago cost Japan more than 200,000 casualties, roughly a tenth of all Japanese military casualties during the war, to hold that small handful of islands. So Solomon, or the Solomons, fall, and Xi'an, or Japan, suffers, in the words of the show, a defeat that could not be anticipated or prepared for. I have glossed over much of the horror of these battles, but let it suffice for me to read you a quote from the book Our Jungle Road to Tokyo, written by the general who commanded the fighting at Bunagona, on the eastern coast of New Guinea, during the Guadalcanal campaign. No one who fought there, however hard he tries, will ever forget it. I am a reasonably unimaginative man. But Buna is still to me a nightmare. This long after, I can still remember every day and most of the nights as clearly as though they were days and nights last week. Chilling. Yeah. It was the siege of Syracuse. The Romans had besieged the Hellenistic city of Syracuse on the island of Sicily. And among the defenders was famous mathematician and scientist Archimedes. The siege dragged on for months and was eventually broken when a small group of Roman soldiers scaled the walls while the inhabitants of the city celebrated the festival of Artemis. Archimedes was supposed to be captured alive but was killed when the Romans took the city. Several different stories are given and it's uncertain which, if any of them, is true. But what's relevant to this episode is, 
He is said to have used a series of mirrors, acting as a parabolic reflector, to light the sails of the Roman ships on fire. It was called a heat ray, and was not described in any histories until several centuries later. So whether or not it really happened, and whether or not it's possible to use mirrors in this way, has been hotly debated since the Renaissance. <laughs> it's nuts that we remember Archimedes in popular culture principally for saying Eureka in the bath, and not for building a literal death ray. Or for his supposed dying words, <laughs> which are also <laughs> amazing. He had sketched out some part of a mathematical formula he was working on. And supposedly the last thing he said before this Roman soldier killed him was like, don't mess up my circles, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> <laughs> the mirror-based heat ray has been tested several times in the past few decades. In 1973, a Greek scientist with a vested interest in making this thing work <laughs> uh, used 70 copper-coated mirrors, each about three feet by five feet, to light a plywood mock-up of a ship on fire at a distance of 160 feet. The mirrors had to be carefully focused, and the mock-up was coated in tar-based paint. But ships of that era would also have been covered in tar, so this hardly seems like an unfair aid to combustion. It only took seconds for the ship to light on fire. In 2005, students at MIT attempted it with 127 mirrors, each one foot square, and a mock-up ship at a distance of 100 feet. They succeeded, but only in clear, sunny conditions, and it took 10 minutes for the heat ray to heat the wood to burning. They repeated the experiment for an episode of Mythbusters and achieved some charring, but that was it. Mythbusters attempted it one more time, with 500 school children holding mirrors <laughs> and attempting to light a mock ship at a distance of 400 feet. This experiment failed to light the mock ship on fire, and Mythbusters considered the myth busted, also pointing out that other methods, like flaming arrows, would have been simpler in execution, and since the city of Syracuse faced east, they could only have used the heat ray in the morning hours. However, 500 kids are hardly a precise means of calibrating a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> the Mediterranean has no shortage of bright, sunny days. And you can run out of arrows. Also, from all the stories about Archimedes, he really sounds like the sort of person who would have done this just to see if he could. Oh, yeah. Just not for because the, it's practical. Just for the heck of it. <laughs> <laughs> also, in general, I think we underestimate the ingenuity of classical science. Yeah, frankly, like, yes, a Greek scientist has a vested interest in proving that this works because it makes Greece look especially cool. Uh, but it also sounds like the most consistent with the technology of the time. The distance is somewhere between the distances of the other two experiments. Copper-coated mirrors were, I think, more common at that time. Um, the size of the mirror would maybe have been a barrier. Doing mirrors that big would certainly have been very expensive, but possible. Yeah. Uh, and the tar-coated ships, like, yes, all of the ships would have been covered in tar. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, with future technology, I can easily believe that massive mirrors in space could produce a ray that destroys spaceships. Absolutely. And, you know, the siege of Syracuse went on for a while. Archimedes probably had a lot of chances. He only had to succeed once. Now I'm picturing him like every morning going out to calibrate his mirrors. <laughs> Just like first thing in the morning, he goes out and sets them up to see if maybe today's the day. <laughs> We didn't bring them up in the recap or the talkback, because they were not very interesting or effective, but the forces at Solomon have weaponized asteroids. They appear to be asteroids with a propulsion system attached, controlled remotely. 
They don't seem to be capable of precision maneuvering, more of a point-and-shoot kind of weapon, but it did make me wonder if any research has been done into weaponizing asteroids. Unsurprisingly, it's been looked into. (laughs) But always with Earth as the target. I'll link some sources, but for a whole host of reasons, they would not be terribly effective. I suppose no one country has enough assets in space yet for them to be thinking about true space battle. But one interesting tidbit came up while I was researching this. As early as the 1950s, aerospace researchers have envisaged massive rods forged of heavy metals and dropped to Earth from suborbital heights to destroy highly fortified targets. If that doesn't sound like a mini version of the colony drop, I don't know what does. This theoretical weapon goes by a number of fanciful names, including Tungsten Thunderbolts, Project Thor, and Rods from God. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Tungsten Thunderbolts, <laughs> Thor's Hammer, and... Project Project Thor, Pro- Project Thor, sorry. <laughs> and Rods from God. Yep. You said that, that with a little bit of a Valley Girl voice. God. It, no, it's, it's just such a silly <laughs> name <laughs> compared to the other ones. At the end of the Aeneid, an epic Latin poem about the foundation of the Roman race, the hero Aeneas, Trojan survivor of the Trojan War, faces an Italian prince named Turnus from the Rutulian tribe. Turnus is a complicated figure, one neither particularly good nor particularly bad. He has good qualities and legitimate grievances, but he has also done horrible things. Among the worst, he started a disastrous war in order to win a bride who didn't want him, and he's callously butchered a young boy on the battlefield merely for the sake of glory and treasure. Aeneas, likewise, is a complicated hero. Defined by his piety and adherence to duty, he has tirelessly followed the commands of the gods, even when those commands inflicted cruel and needless suffering on innocents caught in his wake. He and his have sacrificed much to reach this point, ever since they fled the ruins of Troy. An acknowledgement of two mighty warriors with good qualities and bad, men who have done good things and bad, heroes and monsters both, I've prepared a reading for you from Book 12 of the Aeneid, lines 919 to 931, first in the original Latin, and then my own loose translation. I hope you enjoy it. And to any fellow classics nerds listening to the podcast, please do not blame my teachers. They did teach me dactylic hexameter, and there was a time when I could do it, but that was many years ago, and I am not going to relearn how to scan the Aeneid for the sake of Slegger and Dozel. They should consider themselves lucky that they are getting any kind of acknowledgement at all. Cunctanti telum. Aeneas fatale curuscat, sortitus fortunam oculis et corpore toto, eminus intorquet, murali concita numquam, tormentos ixaxa fremunt, nec fulmine tanti disultant crepitus. Volat atri turbines instar, exitium dirum hastaferuns orasque recludit, loricae, et clipei extremus septemplicus orbis, Per medium stridens transit femur, incir ictus, ingens ad terram duplicato poplite turnus. Consurgunt gemitu, rutuli totusque rumuget, mons circum et vocem late nemora alta remetunt. Ile humilis suplex oculos dextramque precantem protendens, equidem merui, nec deprecor, inquit. 
Aeneas waited, then a chance, and with every ounce of his strength he hurled his flashing spear. Never had the crash of rock on city wall, nor the roll of thunder struck so loudly. The spear is a black whirlwind. It pierces the bronze rim of the seven-layered shield. It pierces the armor plate below, and with a horrible shrieking noise it plunges through the center of the enemy's thigh. The force of it drives Turnus to the ground. A moan rises up from all his tribe gathered round. The encircling hills and the woods moan too. He extends his free arm like a suppliant and begs, This is what I deserve. No mercy. Don't hesitate. Next time on episode 1.30, the assassination of McVeigh by the Esper Amaro Ray, two psychics walk into a desert. Tom says Gelgoog a lot. Westworld. Leisure and cattle? How are those trees alive? A thousand tiny swords. Showdown at high twilight. Shark can pilot anything. Weaponized hugging and something incredibly valuable. Will you be able to survive? Gelgoog. 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 Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Dozel telling Zena to make sure Minima grows up strong isn't going to come back to haunt us at all! On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The music for the Slager and Dozel section is... Without Redemption by Kai Engel. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. And the battles... Is it Battles of the Solomon Islands or Battle of the... What's it? What's the... <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> uh, the Solomon Islands campaign and the related campaigns. Hang on. Let's look. The big exam is technically a mobile armor. Okay. If you want a general term, it's a mobile weapon. Uh, uh. <laughs> You're going to lawyer me about all the terms. I'm just... <sighs> do what you got to do, man. <laughs> oh, oh, oh.
Slager. Dance break. All right, I'm gonna eat a little bread and then I can continue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>